0: Well, welcome to Horizon. It is great to have you with us today. We are in a brand new series called Doors. And we're talking about the different doors and decisions we make in our life that open us up to new possibilities. If you don't recognize that song, it's by Peter Gabriel. It's called Salisbury Hill. It's a, really about a spiritual journey he has and an encounter he has with God on Salisbury Hill. And this his heart's beating. I've got success. I've got money. I've checked off my bucket list, but it's like I'm longing for something more. He's longing to open the door and walk into a new place we can feel at home, at peace with God and at peace with himself. And there's this longing in him to find that pathway. Well, today I want to tell you a story about a guy who's a very similar spiritual journey. And his spiritual journey is so significant that everything you and I know to be kind of normal today is because of the influence of this man. Our understanding of democracy, our ability to vote and speak and have freedom of speech is because of what this guy did in 1500. Our understanding that the state doesn't tell us what to do and that the church doesn't tell us what to do, but that we can speak out of conscience is because of this man's influence. Our understanding of the law And the idea that in law we have freedom of conscience and not to violate our conscience comes from this man. His influence on law, on politics, on freedom, on democracy, but also on religion. That you could live, you can live with peace from God. Not living with condemnation, but you can know you're right with God. You can know you're at peace with God. All comes from this man's influence the freedom he found for himself and espoused other people. Let me give you a short little summary of his story as we jump back in time to 1520 A.D., a man named Martin Luther. You know, with the exception of Jesus Christ, more books have been written about Martin Luther than any character in history. In fact, the man and his impact was world-changing. See, long before he was a noted scholar and theologian, He was just kind of an ordinary guy who had a brush with death. He was in the middle of a violent thunderstorm, lightning storm, in fact, when he called out to God to deliver him. It forced him to think about whether or not he was right with God and what does that even mean anyway. So he began to search the Bible, asking questions about what does it mean to be in sync or out of sync with God? What about judgment? What about death? What about the afterlife? What would he say? What would he do? If he was standing before God, had he done enough? Was he righteous enough? This created a compulsion in him to, to do enough, whatever enough is. He, he was obsessive, almost compulsive over following church regulation and church ritual. And none of that could remove this haunting sense that death was looming and he was not at peace with God. In fact, he became a theologian and a scholar of his day, and many of his friends sensed this, this, this uncomfortableness in his own soul, and they told him to busy himself with maybe the affairs of academic life. Over the next few years, Luther became a well-known theologian and very respected scholar. This gave him a front-row seat to the affairs of the church. And unfortunately, that front-row seat meant he saw firsthand that both hypocrisy and greed of the church of his day. As a student of the Bible, he began to see a a division between what the Pope and the bishops like himself were teaching and what he was actually reading in the Bible itself. But what really concerned him was this new doctrine that came in vogue called indulgences. Specifically, the church was teaching you could pay money to the church to get your dead relatives into heaven or out of hell. Martin Luther saw this as a way of exploiting the poor to enhance the powerful. Now, deeply concerned about papal greed and religious hypocrisy, he invited fellow priests to discuss how they could bring about academic reform to create a church that was more pure and more aligned with God. So he grabbed a hammer and he went and pounded his 95-point thesis, really a discussion point, He pounded that on the door of Wittenberg on October 31st of 1517, hoping to trigger debate and help for the church. Well, two years later, his discussion points were rejected by most around him, and instead it created a brand new thing known as the Protestant Reformation and leading to a world-changing ripple of effect in Christian thought and Christian practice. So Martin Luther, maybe you've heard of the Lutheran uh, Christian uh, practice or denomination that comes from Martin Luther, but really every denomination, every church you've ever heard of has been influenced by this man. So let's tell a bit about his history, how he opened the door to our understanding of modern democracy and modern republic and freedom, and, and he opened the door for people to find peace with God and to speak truth to power and to speak against injustice wherever it's found through history. He wasn't born Martin Luther, he was actually born with a different name, but his family were good practicing Catholics, and so a few days after he was born, they baptized him as a baby on St. Martin's Day. Who's St. Martin? Well, St. Martin was someone, we're going to jump back in time from 1500 to 300 AD. St. Martin was a Catholic priest who was deeply impacted by helping the poor. He had become a follower of Jesus, and he heard Jesus' words about, what you're doing to the least of these, you're doing to me. And unlike other Roman soldiers who walked right past the, the, the needy and the poor and the freezing and the snow, he would give his coat, he would give his cloak to those around him as a Roman soldier. One time he'd given away so much of his clothing that there was a, a beggar freezing in the snow. Every other soldier walking past him and St. Martin took off what little piece of cloth he had, cut it in half so he could have a half to stay warm and the other half for this freezing beggar. That night he had a dream where Jesus appeared in the dream and Jesus was snuggled up with his half piece of cloak. And St. Martin saw this as a reminder that when we help the poor, when we help those who have been exploited by society, we're actually serving God himself. However, the Roman army and the Roman forces at the time wanted him to commit certain atrocities he considered murder. And of course the Romans weren't much for victimization and they weren't much for freedom of conscience. And so when St. Martin said he's willing to serve and do his duty but he would not commit murder, all of a sudden the Roman guards were after him and they brought him to Worms, Germany. And in Worms, Germany, St. Martin stood before them and said, listen, I'll do my duty but I will not murder. I cannot violate my conscience. And the Romans said, you will do what you're told or you will die. And here in Worms, Germany... In 300 A.D., St. Martin made a stand for conscience, for speaking against injustice, even when it came from the state. Now, fast forward to 1500. Martin Luther is named after that man, a man who stood in Worms, Germany, to speak up for conscience, to speak up for the poor and those who have been exploited. And Martin Luther finds himself on trial, speaking truth to power against the corruption of his day, both coming from the church and coming from the state. And guess where that trial is (laughs) worms germany 1300 years later where he's standing up against all the wealthiest all the most powerful people in his day and he's saying as humbly as he can guys i I think there's something wrong can i explain myself and they say no you will recant or you will die and he gives kind of a famous speech here about conscience he turns to these very powerful people who really controlled the world at the time and said Listen, guys, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I can't just accept the authority of the popes and, and the councils. They've contradicted themselves so many times. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant of anything. It goes against my conscience. It's not right. It's not safe. So, so God help me. Amen. I'm stuck. You're not willing to discuss with me why you've come to your conclusion, and you tell me I just have to stop thinking what I'm thinking, and my conscience doesn't allow me to do that. Martin Luther is going to unleash this principle that's going to transform the world. Speaking truth to power, standing up for conscience, religious liberty. See, in those days, and for the 1,500 years and before, if the state told you to do something, the king said it was right, you just obeyed. And if the church said it was right, and the church said you need to believe it, you just had to obey. This is the first time in, in, in a global way that someone stood up for conscience against both the state and the church. And the principle he unleashes is this, that anyone anyone who had a truth to claim must be examined by everyone using truth and reason. That critical thinking could speak up against both the state and the church. Anyone, whatever expert they are, whatever credentials they had, anyone making a truth claim must be challenged by everyone using truth and reason. So I'll tell you the story about three Martin Luthers today and how freedom and truth and forgiveness and peace came through challenging the status quo. It begins with Martin Luther. <laughs> Martin Luther, as I mentioned in the video, he had this incredible uh, encounter with you know, the sensitivity that he didn't live up to the golden rule. Many people say, Well, I follow the golden rule, but, but do you really? I don't. I wish I did. Do you love people the way you love yourself? Are you as generous to others as you are to yourself? Do you give other people the benefit of the doubt the way you give it to yourself? See, Martin Luther had such a sensitivity to the way in which he didn't live up to his own standards, let alone God's, that he wondered what he would say if he stood before God and had to give an account for his life. He had an encounter in a thunderstorm and later on with a, a knife that went through his leg and he thought he was going to die that he had to think about this. What would I say and what would I do and how do you know when you've done enough? And I don't think anyone in history has worked harder, prayed harder, uh, done more good deeds and more good works to try and be good enough for God than Martin Luther. In fact, in Eric Metaxas' book, Martin Luther, he says, The church created Martin Luther because he tried desperately to follow the church's teachings and found it impossible. He just found himself on a treadmill. Of I can never get out from this big blanket of guilt. I can never know if I've done enough. How do you know if you've done enough? will give you an example. He was so sensitive to ways in which he'd been impatient or unkind or maybe had a, uh, an impure thought toward a, a fellow friend. He would spend six to eight hours a day in confession. That's a lot of confession. Like Do you even have enough stuff you did in a day that you could spend six to eight hours talking about it? Now imagine you're the priest on the other side of the confessional listening to it for six to eight hours. In fact, this went on and on, but but keep in mind Luther was tortured by the idea that he wasn't righteous enough. He was so aware of his own brokenness, his own inability to keep his own standards that he just was trying to get clean. Mentioning the littlest place that he ignored God or or didn't take loving others seriously or was impatient with a fellow monk or fellow priest. One day, the the father who was listening to him on the other side of confessional said, Martin, bring me murder. Bring me adultery. Bring me something worth talking about, not this litany of little things. But Martin Luther wanted peace with God. And here was the challenge. Here was the teaching of the church in that day that was kind of driving this guilt fest he had. They taught that when you were born, you were born with what they called original sin. Think of it as you and I have the inability to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. We don't love people the way we love ourselves. We're not kind to people the way we're kind to ourselves. We're impatient. We're, we're impure. We lust after power. We lust after things. we got a problem with pride and ego. However, the way you solve this problem is as quickly as possible when you're born, you would be baptized, and that baptism would forgive you from that point backwards. So you were were forgiven of the big problem, original sin. But moving forward, your whole life was basically an accounting exercise. Had a good day, had a good day, did some nice things, mm, got crabby, got critical. And so your whole life was a series of minuses and pluses. And when the minuses were accumulating, you had to go to Eucharist, and you had to go to Rosemary, and you had to uh, go and do some good deeds or give some, some money away. And so your whole life was trying to keep track of the pluses and the minuses. And you hoped maybe that the pluses would outweigh the minuses. But Martin Luther was very sensitive that there's a lot more minuses than you might think, and your pluses aren't nearly as impressive as you might think. And then you hope that maybe right before you die, you try and bring in a priest and give you last rites. And those last rites were to try and grab whatever you didn't make up for and grab all of that and forgive you from that point backwards. But there was still this gap. The gap is whatever you didn't forgive, whatever you didn't make up for, that's what purgatory was for. The idea that you didn't go straight to heaven, you had to kind of go through the fire of purgatory and burn away whatever minuses you hadn't dealt with. And that's what haunted Martin Luther. Well, this little spot, this little gap of purgatory was just ripe for corruption. So much so that a pope in that day, a guy named Pope Leo X, he decided he wanted to do some fundraising to build some more buildings. And he'd already gotten the poor all over the country to give money to kind of buy their own way out of purgatory. But he came up with a brand new idea. What if you could buy or give to the church to help your dead grandmother or dead aunt or dead kid get out of purgatory. So he presents this new doctrine, the doctrine of indulgences for your dead relatives, and he begins to just bring in money everywhere for people trying to buy their relatives into heaven. And Martin Luther sees this as ripe with corruption. And now that he's a practicing Catholic priest, he has a front row seat to some of the worst of the corruption. And one of the turning points for him, besides his own torturous guilt, was the corruption demonstrated by Hanno the Elephant. Who's Hanno the Elephant? The Pope commissioned Raphael to paint a picture of his pet elephant. The Pope had gotten this pet elephant from the king. There hadn't been an elephant in Italy since, you know, way back in the the Roman Empire days. And it was a very, very popular attraction in those days. Well, this required care. This required people taking care of the elephant. But then the elephant got sick. And the elephant wasn't doing well. And the Pope, as you see him up on top of his elephant, he loved this elephant. And he called in the Vatican doctors to go and take care of the elephant. And they determined that the elephant was constipated. And the common practice in that day, believe it or not, for human beings, was if you were constipated, you would actually take gold flakes and use them as a suppository. And Martin Luther is watching as they take literal gold flakes taken from the poor all through Germany and Europe, and they're basically stuffing it up the elephant, which ultimately didn't work out, and Hannah the elephant is buried under the Vatican today. This becomes a, a moment for Martin Luther of saying, something is wrong. And it wasn't just him. Many other priests, they weren't trying to start a new church. They weren't trying to start a new movement. They just said, we've got to speak against the injustices and corruption around us. It was both the corruption, exemplified by Hanno the elephant. It was also his own torturous guilt. He writes in his journal these words. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I mean, I tried as hard as possible to live up to these standards. I felt that I was a sinner before God. I was extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I could make up for what I've done wrong. My pluses could outweigh my minuses. I did not love. Yes, I hated that righteousness of God, that standard of God who punishes sinners. I was angry at God who added pain to pain by his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. He's like, this can't be how God wants me to live. So one day he's reading in the book of Romans. In his journal, I'll put it up here, but I'll just summarize. He's writing his journal. He says, I came across this writing from St. Paul. Paul. That said that when you by faith trust in god you can live in righteousness it's not something you do for god it's something god gives to you it's a gift see his whole life he had been obeying in hope of being accepted but he says paul says you can be accepted perfectly by jesus and you're so grateful for that perfect acceptance and peace you want to obey he said religion is i obey to be accepted." The gospel, the message of the Bible, is you're accepted, therefore you obey. If I was to write it out, it might look like this. He discovered that you are born and and I am born. We will one day die. But there will come a moment in your life when you realize that my pluses and my minuses don't add up. There's just no way that my pluses are that good or my minuses are that small. And so when you accept Jesus Christ as your forgiver and leader, you realize that when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty. And here's where it was different. He paid the penalty for everything you did in the present, the past, and the future. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation in Jesus Christ. You can live without condemnation knowing everything's been forgiven. And this doesn't give you a license to to live however you want. In fact, it makes you more open to find out what you've done wrong. Because whatever you find out, he's already forgiven you for it. And that acceptance and that peace would motivate you to live in a totally new way. Well, this is so freeing for Martin Luther. He says, well, I want everybody to know peace with God. I want everyone to know they don't live in condemnation. I don't want be in the torturous guilt that I was in. And somehow we've corrupted the main message of the Bible into whatever this you know, elephant suppository thing is. So he decides to have a discussion. It was really nothing more than a light discussion amongst fellow leaders. It's called the 95 Thesis on Wittenberg Door. But really, he wrote out 95 things he thought might be worth discussing to reform the church and to get it more in line with truth. And he pounds it up on the Wittenberg Door to have a discussion. (laughs) <laughs> but it doesn't go over well. Just to give you an idea of how strong these statements were that would speak against the powers of the day, here's just a few of the points of his 95 points. Only God can grant salvation, not a priest. And if a priest could grant it, why wouldn't we tell everybody they're forgiven? It's a good point. The Pope can act according to canon law, that if the Bible says something, whatever leader you are, whether you're a televangelist or whether you're a Pope, you can't work outside of, of the truth. Six, only God can forgive. The Pope can reassure people that God will do it, but you don't have the power to forgive. The priest must threaten those di- must not threaten those dying with the penalty of purgatory. We don't motivate people by fear, but by, by the love of God. It's nonsense to teach that a dead soul in purgatory can be saved by money. This is ripe for corruption, and there's nowhere in the Bible. He goes on. Here's a couple more. Christians should be taught that the buying of indulgences does not compare with being forgiven by Christ. The main treasure of the church should be the gospel and grace of God, not money. The Pope should rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with his own money. How do you think this went over? And that's just a few of them. Well, listen, he was open to being wrong. He had this discussion just to have a small little group of people to talk but the printing press had just been invented and somebody took his points and mass-produced them and it went all over germany and all over europe everyone's now reading and they're like these are all fellow catholics yes there's corruption yes this is wrong yes this is not right but most of them don't have access to the bible because it's only a few copies only written in latin and they speak german so he gets hoisted in to the to, to worms germany with the most powerful people of his day who basically recant or die. He says, God, I'm open to being wrong. I'm open to being convinced. But you got to tell me, like, where did you get this stuff? Because it's not coming from the Bible that we read. And that's when he gives a famous speech. He goes, guys, here I stand and I could do no more. I- I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I can't violate my conscience. He leaves and is so scared of his life. He's walking through the day in broad daylight, by the way, and several men come up with masks on, capture him, throw a bag over his head, and kidnap him. Broad daylight. Uh, Later on, as they as as he finally comes to and they take the bag off his head, he looks around. Who kidnapped him? It was his buddies. They were so scared for his life, they kidnapped him in broad daylight, so people would think he'd been kidnapped by somebody else. And he's hiding out for six to eight weeks they shave his head so he looks more like a knight in those days and they referred to him as king or knight george just to save his life the guy is a genius he's got 6 to 8 weeks to kill while he's hiding out he says you know what the people of you know what the people of germany need education they don't have access to books they don't have access to god's word so in 6 weeks he not only reads the new testament he translates the entire new testament from Latin to German. It's known as the Lutheran Bible. You can see it um, all over the place. I saw it recently up in Washington, D.C. And this piece of literature that he wrote in just, translated in just six weeks, is still considered a classic piece of literature that transformed human history. What did Luther want? Why does he want the Bible in people's hands? Why is he pro education and pro conscience and pro people critical thinking and challenging the, the thoughts of the day, whether they come from the state or where they come from religion? He wanted people the freedom of truth, peace with God, and also the ability to speak against corruption, whether it's found in yourself or others. And that was our first Martin Luther. Now, jump forward with me to 1934. In 1934, we meet a man who's a pastor in Atlanta. He'll eventually be known as Martin Luther King, Sr., but he's born Michael King. He's pastoring in Atlanta about the time that Adolf Hitler is coming to power. He is part of a denomination called the Baptists, and Baptists wouldn't exist today had it not been for what Martin Luther did in starting the Protestant Reformation, which every denomination you've ever heard of is because of Martin Luther, including the Baptists. As a fellow Baptist, he takes a trip with his Baptist organization they get to Berlin as Adolf Hitler is beginning to espouse his Nazism and his racism and has a whole bunch of Christians on board, I might add. And his denomination, the Baptists, speaks out clearly and boldly against this new doctrine, this horrible racism coming from from Adolf Hitler. And here's what they said in 1934, his denomination. Worldwide interracial fellowship of Baptists rejoices to know that despite all the differences of race, there is in Christ the all-embracing unity, so that in Him it can be claimed that with deepest truth there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is in all. And we condemn as a violation of the law of God and the Heavenly Father all racial animosity and every form of oppression." Michael King is so impressed that his Baptist organization would speak out against this rising power of influence of Adolf Hitler. It must be so clear that the Bible teaches against that despite Christians endorsing it. He says, I'm going to change my name from Michael King to Martin Luther King Sr. I'm so impressed that the reason my Baptist organization could stand up against injustice is because Martin Luther had stand up against injustice three or four hundred years earlier. And this pastor in Atlanta began to say that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and when courage is nowhere, Christians, just like Martin Luther did, stand up for truth. So he changed his name, and he changed the name of his son. And his son's name will be Martin Luther King, Jr., Now, here's where the story takes a bizarre twist. Adolf Hitler has to figure out how to get German Lutherans on board with his idea of being racist against the Jews, and blacks and gays, for that matter. So what he does is he finds some writings at the end of Martin Luther's life where Martin Luther says some of the most horrific, racist things against the Jewish people. Lots of books have been written about this. Some say it's because he went senile and these were crazy talks. Some think he was speaking against the Jewish leaders. He felt like we're oppressing the people. Whatever the reason, what Martin Luther wrote at the end of his life was horrible, racist, sickening stuff. And Adolf Hitler used his writings to get the Christian on board with what he was doing early on. In walks Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a strong Christian living the day of Adolf Hitler, who said, I don't care if Adolf Hitler says it. I don't care if Martin Luther says it. That's not true. Anyone who makes a truth claim, including Martin Luther, must be questioned by everyone using reason and truth. And what Martin Luther said about that topic is wrong. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other Christians Germans worked against Adolf Hitler, saving people, rescuing people, espousing people, educating people. Ultimately, they got pushed to the very end to try and assassinate Adolf Hitler because of his genocide. Because they believe that everyone, using truth and reason, has got to challenge anyone making a truth claim. And despite the ways Martin Luther was off base, Martin Luther King Sr. still felt like his influence of speaking up against injustice was so powerful, he renamed himself and his son after his influence. Which brings us to our final Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Jr. I don't know if you've read much of his writings. We all kind of hear the speech that, uh, the content of your character speech, but if you've ever read his writings, it is so powerful. Martin Luther King, Jr. was a theologian. And every time he talked about why racism was wrong and why they were doing what they were doing and why it was so important, it's just buried in theology. And his message was not divisive. It was always unifying while speaking against injustice. He believed that God's truth and reason bring people together because of a sacredness they share. The man we know as Martin Luther King Jr. was always talking about the basic biblical foundation that Martin Luther found, that his dad spoke about as a pastor, that motivated them. And look how unifying this message is. Rather than kind of dividing people, it brought people together. He said, we all have the same basic problem. What is that problem? Well, first of all, start with the good stuff. We all have the same Creator. We're all made by the same creator, and that brings us together. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all made by the same creator, and that unifies us as a people. We all have the same father. According to the Bible, we all have our descendant family tree go through Noah and through Adam, and so we're all part of the same family. Third, we all have the same God-given rights. You can't own someone else because someone can't own you. God gave you the right to be free, and that's very unifying that we fight for that as, as a common purpose. Then he said, we all got the same problem, which is that we don't live up to our own standards. We all have the same problem of racism. What is racism but really ego and pride? I think I'm better than other people. I think I can use other people. I think I can objectify other people. You may have not done it in one particular way, but in some way, we've all got the same problem. Pride and ego, thinking we're better than others. Thank goodness I'm not a Jew. Thank goodness I'm not an Aryan. Thank goodness I'm not a a conservative. Thank goodness I'm not a liberal. We all have in our heart the sense in which we judge other people. And we need forgiveness for it. And we need to have humility in it. We all have the same Savior. God came to rescue this minus, minus, minus ego problem in our heart so that we can know we're in the same family. So, Martin Luther King Jr. finds himself in jail many times, but as he's espousing nonviolence, speaking against the injustice of his day with conscience, he's in a jail in Birmingham, Alabama. And fellow Christians are saying, Tell me why you think it's okay that you can be speaking against these laws, these legal laws in our country. I want to take a few minutes and I want you to just read a small section. It'd be worth today reading the whole thing. It's one of my favorite pieces by Martin Luther King, Jr. We're just going to take a small section of his explanation. Read it on the screen, think about it, and look at how he espouses the theology of a Catholic philosopher from the Bible to build his case for why he's doing what he's doing. He goes on later and gives some biblical examples. He says, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel spoke up against the laws of of Nebuchadnezzar, so we too need to do the same. In fact, go ahead and put the next slide. I love what he said at the end. He says, let's never forget, let's never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. We've got to speak up. Whoever the expert is, whoever the PhD is they have, whether from the church or the state, everyone needs to stand up what is right and there's a biblical precedent for it yeah i know if you've if you've been on a spiritual journey at all you'll often hear people say and it's understandable i was just talking to a buddy at our church who's a who's an agnostic and he said you know the bible clearly supports racism he quoted a couple verses about slavery from the old testament And I said, well, those are some challenging passages. I said, a lot of that has to do with how you interpret the word slave. It's kind of more like indentured servant or bankruptcy law. And if you read a little bit further, it's always they're paying off their debts and they could be free in three years or six years or ten years. He said, no, I don't believe that. The Bible supports slavery. I said, well, can we zoom out and look at the forest for a second? If the Bible endorses slavery, why did the, the major abolitionists in history use the Bible as their textbook? Martin Luther King... William Wilberforce in the UK, like, if it's such a slavery-inducing book, why would the abolitionists use the Bible to support the freedom of people? I said, and the whole Bible is really built on the Old Testament, the idea that God freed the the Israelites from Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Like, the whole book's about that. And the Jews have always been in slavery to the Egyptians and to the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire. Do you think of people who've been in slavery their whole life, wrote a book that's all about how they want to endorse slavery? There's an entire book in the New Testament called the book of Philemon that says in the Roman Empire, if you're a Christian and you own somebody, you better let them go because you shouldn't own people and in Christ we're free. He said, well, I've never thought about that. I said, there's some challenging passages and we'll dig into those hard passages and we have because I've never thought about the Bible as a support of abolitionists. Do you know two-thirds of those who came through the Underground Railroad came through Cincinnati area? Maybe you've not taken your family. I've taken my family many times down to the Underground Railroad at the Freedom Center down in downtown Cincinnati, and you'll see it was pastors and pastors' families that hid and ran the Underground Railroad because of their belief in the Bible and speaking against the injustice. So three Martin Luthers. (laughs) Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Sr., and Martin Luther King, Jr. And here's my challenge to you as you think about these incredible lives who made a huge difference what does it look like for you to question boldly and to build bridges? Is God knocking on the door for you as He's saying, listen, are you still struggling with the treadmill of wondering if you can ever find peace with God? Maybe answering the door is saying, God, I want to not believe what a pastor told me or a priest told me or a televangelist told me. I want to look into the Bible myself. The, the reason we do what we do as a church Have whatever label you want. We have Catholics who go here. We have Presbyterians who go here. We have people who don't care what they're called go here. We have agnostics go here. Everyone's welcome. We're yours to explore. But answer the door. Look into how you got the beliefs you got. Have you ever discovered them for yourself? Have you ever asked yourself, does truth and reason support the conclusions I've come to? And two, build bridges. Build bridges with people. Find a way like Martin Luther King did, King Jr., to advocate the reason why you're doing what you're doing and to advocate nonviolence, but advocate people coming together to fight against things that are not true and things that are unjust and things that denigrate human personality. What would it look like for you to question boldly why you've come to your own conclusions, but also to build bridges with people who are different from you because the Bible allows you to love people who disagree with you. Adamantly, because you know that they're not the problem, you're the problem, we're all the problem, and God came to forgive all of us. As the band comes out, we're going to do this last song you've probably heard many times, it's called Pride, but it's actually the story of Martin Luther King and how his love and how his humility transformed the world. My last church was down in LaGrange, Georgia. It was a multiracial church, probably 40% black, 40% white, and probably 20% Hispanic that was really what our community looked like. And I was just shocked to find out that as early as 30 years ago, my community was still practicing separate but equal school systems. There was a black school system, and there was a white school system, and the two did not intertwine. But 25 years ago, they forced the separate but equal to come together. But even though they were forced into the same school system, it was still all the kids in the lunchroom, the black sat on this side and the white sat on this side. One of our values as a church was racial reconciliation. We worked very hard with our, our leaders um, in all different races to find out how to create a multiracial church. We had leaders uh, in the school system. The Super- first black superintendent was a friend of mine, uh, many of school um, teachers, and they said, Chad, here's what's amazing over the last five years. If you come into the cafeteria today, you will see it's still mostly blacks on one side, whites on the other. But there's a whole series of tables in the middle where people are just sitting with their friends, red and yellow, black and white, knowing they're all precious in His sight. And if you look at who's sitting in those rows just sitting by their friends, it's almost all the kids who attend our church because they're just sitting by their buddies. They don't see the black or the white. The message of Jesus is designed to bring people together In the name of love. And Martin Luther King Jr. espousing Christianity as a support for that message did exactly that. He brought people together while standing up against injustice.